Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Alliance Against Occlusion and Restraints uh, special Facebook live series. My name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Occlusion and Restraint. Uh, I started the organization to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the nation. Of course, that mission has, has grown and our mission is to educate the public and connect people together that are dedicated to changing minds, laws, policies, and practices around restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, all the things that are being done to kids and not supporting them. And of course, we don't want to see restraint and seclusion happening anywhere. And we continue to kind of expand our work and expand what we're doing. Our vision is to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. So really exciting today. Uh, we have an amazing guest with us today. Uh, as we were we were talking, I said, you know, we, we, we look at you as a rock star. And he, he told me to repeat that if his wife happened to come by the room. And I certainly will. Uh, Dr. Stephen Porges will be joining us today for a special interview. We will be taking your questions during the interview. And I want you to feel free to ask any questions that you might have. Uh, you'll be able to put those in the uh, text uh, if you're watching on Facebook. And we'll see those and be able to ask those and share your questions. So please don't hesitate to ask any questions. You can ask them at any point. We'll be looking for them and I'll remind you as well. Also, today's event will be recorded. So if you're not able to watch the whole event now or after you watch it, you think, hey, I've got to recommend this to another uh, parent or teacher or administrator or whoever it might be that you think would benefit from it, I'd recommend that you share it with them. It will be available on Facebook, YouTube, and as an audio podcast. So uh, before we get started in introducing our guest, I want to begin by introducing our amazing co-host today. So we have Beth Holly, and Beth is our Director of Educational Strategy at the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, I think I first um, got to know you probably almost two years ago, and you were one of the first people to, to join me here at the Alliance and uh, have been helping ever since. Uh, of course, you know, you had retired not long before that. You retired in 2018 from a leadership position in Virginia's lead agency for early interventions for infants and toddlers. Uh, you knew, of course, that once you joined us, that it wasn't really retirement anymore. We had to had to put you to work and keep you busy and really appreciate all you've been doing. So your experience, of course, is as a parent and a grandparent of children who have had behavioral challenges. And that's really fueled your passion for really helping improve the lives of children and families through education, mutual support and advocacy. And of course, you are an amazing researcher and, and writer and have done so much to help with all the things that we're doing. So welcome, Beth. Thank you so much. And I know that you are very excited to introduce our guest today. So I'm going to go ahead and bring our guest up on the screen. And if you would be so kind to do the introduction, that would be fantastic. All right. And I am thrilled. Oh, I'm still making sand stuff. Uh, can you hear me all right? Yeah, we can. fine. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to read because I don't want to miss a single thing of this. Um, so Stephen Porges, who is a PhD, proposed the polyvagal theory, a theory that links the evolution of the mammalian autonomic nervous system to social behavior. And it emphasizes the importance of physiological state in the expression of behavioral problems in psychiatric disorders. The theory is leading to innovative treatments based on insights into the mechanisms mediating symptoms observed in several behavioral, psychiatric, and physical disorders. Dr. Porges is the author of Polyvagal Theory, Neurophysiological Foundations of Emotions, Attachment and Communication and Self-Regulation, uh, and the Pocket Guide to Polyvagal Theory, 
transformative power of feeling safe. I got that up there. <laughs> um, and let's see, what else? Co-editor of Clinical Applications of the Polyvagal Theory, The Emergence of Polyvagal Informed Therapies. He's the creator of a music-based intervention, the Safeton Safe and Sound Protocol, which currently is used by more than 1,400 therapists to improve spontaneous social engagement, to reduce hearing sensitivities, and to improve language processing, state regulation, and spontaneous social engagement. He's a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, where he's the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium and is professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina. And you also have created a new uh, thing that you can tell us about, the new uh, web website. Yeah, yeah. polyvagalinstitute.org. Yeah. Yes, yes. With, with this mission of basically uh, uh, educational mission of translating polyvagal theory principles into different applied areas. So it will be, in a sense, an educational hub, but also we're trying to create niches, people in different areas, like in education and parenting, as well as people in uh, audiology, you know, people in disparate disciplines, finding a home uh, on in in the Polyvagal Institute because they are, in a sense, polyvagal informed. They want to use those organizing principles. Well, we are very, very excited to have you here today. And uh, I can tell you, we've got uh, a big crowd already that's joining us here live. So I think that we're not the only ones that are excited, but thank you so much. I think I, I mentioned to you that um, I was introduced to Mona's work through Beth and then uh, through Mona's work became aware of your work. And it's been transformative in kind of helping to change lens and understand how to work with children and, and really all individuals that uh, are sometimes having a hard time. So we're really excited to have you here today. I wonder if you might begin by just giving us a little bit of background on yourself. And of course, we'll we'll want to dive in. We, we've used the word polyvagal theory quite a bit here, um, but we'll want to dive in pretty early as well and talk about that. But if you could just start off by telling us how, who you are and how you got to where you are beyond all the, uh, the books that you've written. Well, first of all, thank you, Guy, and thank you, Beth, for inviting me to share an hour or so with you. Uh, my journey is probably, uh, I, I wouldn't call it convoluted, but I basically it's quite a normal journey on one level and then a very atypical one on another. On a normal level, it's like, okay, I went to college, I went to grad school, I became a professor, I wrote papers, I got grants, I went through the trajectory of survival and success within an academic environment. But on another level, there was always this understanding or this dream of understanding what it was to be a human, the human experience. Now, there is no scientific discipline that is all about what it is to be a human. So you have to be a little bit careful about how you navigate through those spaces. And it wasn't until uh, I had been a faculty member for, let's see, 25 years that I started to, in a sense, come out or start talking about things. And polyvagal theory was really this way of integrating knowledge to talk about fundamental principles of what it is to be, in a sense, a social mammal. And we, as humans, are social mammals. And I'm refining that, uh, that uh, theme, and I'm talking about our evolutionary journey to sociality. So if you think about the issues of restraint, seclusion, and atypical behavior, it's all about violations of an expectancy of reciprocal sociality. 
And if we understood, or I should say, if more people understood that the ability to express sociality, to be reciprocal, to co-regulate with another, that that was really dependent upon their physiological state, I think our world would change. So my journey is really going through and kind of understanding my history through my own lens of the polyvagal theory and even going back to what it was when I was an adolescent and a musician and played the clarinet and was actually uh, through the act of breathing and listening uh, was actually regulating my state during the tumultuous years of being an adolescent. So you start understanding that uh, you start the principles that you live your life through actually uh, provide examples that you can deconstruct and then teach others. Um, the underlying theme of what we're going to talk about, I presume, is the contradiction in our society and where we treat behavior as if it's intentional, mm-hmm. cognitive, and can be regulated by punishment, which is really, I think, the theme of your group, or rewards as opposed to so much of our behavior is functionally an emergent property of our physiological state. And once we accept that, the portal of treatment changes. And once we understand that the physiological state is actually driving emergent behavioral properties, meaning your body or the body of your child is in a state of threat, and that state of threat is overwhelming, and that leads to meltdowns, aggressiveness, Mm -hmm. which we need to interpret as the body trying to protect itself because it's getting cues of threat, then we start to reconfigure how we treat people. We start trying to figure out how do we send cues of safety. And again, this will be what we'll elaborate on because mammals, unlike all other vertebrates, not only react to threat, they react to cues of safety. Mm-hmm. And once we understand that, this is really what Mona has, Mona Delok has really leveraged in her uh, utilization of neuroception. Mammals respond to cues of safety. And when they respond to cues of safety, they downregulate threat. And so they change their physiological state. And we start to understand that. And again, we get into this vast unknown because who do we talk to? We talk to teachers, we talk to the culture, and the culture uh, says if the kid uh, acts out, it's his fault or her fault, Mm -hmm. and she needs to take responsibility for her behavior. And not understanding that our nervous systems are literally uh, fly traps, they catch the cues of uncertainty in our environment, and uncertainty to anyone's nervous system is threat. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going on during the pandemic as well. So I'll back off and let the dialogue get started. No, no, that, that's, a, that's a fantastic start and very, very relevant, I think, to uh, the interest of, of a lot of the folks that are probably watching today. Uh, and, and, you know, um, I love how you tied this to kind of your own experience and reflecting, uh, you know, that whole idea of self-reflection. Uh, you know, one of the things, of course, that we see, and, and of course, with our issues evolving around the use of things like restraint and seclusion and suspension, expulsion, rewards, punishment, it's all the things that are being done to kids uh, when, in fact, uh, the, the answer is often uh, we need to soothe nervous systems and not to cause threat. Um, and of course, you know, we see an increase in the number of kids coming into classrooms that may have uh, trauma histories. We see uh, you know, if we look at the stats of kids that are restrained secluded, it is disproportionately kids with disabilities. Uh, we see a lot of children with autism and ADHD. Uh, and, and it's such an important point. I mean, to, to 
flip that narrative around from this idea that all behavior is a matter of choice. I mean, here we are looking at a six or seven year old and we're, we're imagining them of developing this complex and manipulative yeah. behavior, which not only were they probably not possibly uh, able to come up with, but, but so much is being missed if you're looking at all that behavior and through that lens of, oh, it's a matter of choice and we've got to offer reward and punishment to get compliance. Yeah. So, so part of the real, first of all, I'm a parent and my kids are now, uh, one's 40 and one's late 30s, but they were products of the school systems and, you know, they're still getting over it, let me use that term, because they were unique and they were viewed, uh, basically they weren't treated well or let's say lovingly. One now is a professor and the other one is a creative filmmaker and, mm -hmm. and journalist. They're both very successful, but they had, I going to say, they had two parents who loved them and basically understood their uniquenesses from the very beginning, but the schools didn't. Mm -hmm. And the issues really are that why would the schools, they're not trained for that. So you think that with all the atypical kids that come through, they would start having courses in dealing with that. Well, what are the courses in areas like special ed? What's the technology that they use in special ed? Behavior modification. Right. And what are they doing? What that's about punishments and rewards or primarily punishments. Uh, and there's a clear signal to a child. Um, I, I had the opportunity to give a, a B.F. Skinner speech to ABAI, the uh, Association for Behavioral Analysis International. So I gave this, uh, they, it's an honor to be invited to give this talk. And I talked about the limitations of behavior mod that they were missing. It wasn't that behavior mod was wrong or SR approaches were wrong, but they were limited. They were dependent upon the physiological state of the child. If they had elaborated to what would be called an S stimulus, O organism, physiological state, R response model, SOR model, they could really be doing something useful. Uh, they would in a sense understand that the physiological state of the child is determining the accessibility of the stimulus to create the response. It, you know, I would say the talk was well received. Did it have impact? Obviously not. So we, we were starting to understand that there are different alternative ways of looking at things. And I think this notion of behavior mod, we're still products of a Watsonian, Skinnerian worldview when it comes to behavior. And we think of behavior as something that we own and can control. And we need to take responsibility for. And this creates all kinds of feelings of shame, blame, guilt, even by those who are successful in navigating the complex world. And what I'm saying is, wouldn't it be lovely mm -hmm. if we honored our own body's reaction and so did society? And I think society starts to paint the picture is that if we cater to the child or the right. adult's right. bodily state, they'll become dependent. And right. everything right. about is about creating self-regulation without an understanding that self-regulation is an emergent property of effective co-regulation. Mm -hmm. So good parenting, mm -hmm. loving, caring helps enable 
the individual to be independent and self-regulated. Right. One of the things that, that I've heard, um, like Ross Green uh, mentioned, is he talks about kind of the, the lucky kids and the unlucky kids. And, and really what he's talking about is that, you know, kid A in a stress response might shut down or be quiet or cry. Kid B in a stress response might might have, yeah, challenging behaviors. They might fight. They might flee. And, yeah. you know, when we look at kids that are really adversely affected by a lot of these things, a lot of people you know, like you said, they survived, they got through some of these adversities. Um, so sometimes people are not uh, empathetic towards people that may have challenges for a number of reasons, and, and including language impairments or, or other things that are making it more difficult for them. We, we also have to understand that a delay in language skills or difficulty in auditory processing is also dependent upon your physiological state. You literally retune those sensory portals when you're in a state of defense. And when you're dealing with a lot of these children, a lot of children who have language delayed or don't sit still, we have to understand that the package is a complex package that comes together. That if we could get the key or the key to the portal that calms their bodies down to make them accessible, then the higher level aspects of the brain can start working. And again, this goes to this other focus within the educational model, which is it's all about downloading cognitive or mental information. Uh, it has very little, uh, uh, let's say, balance or importance on uh, developing co-regulatory skills, meaning play, uh, not about developing state regulation skills. It's all about cognitive uh, production. It's very sad. So. Yeah. What have you had success with um, talking with uh, teachers or leaders in the educational field about this? Well, you see, I, I, having been a parent, I would say that that may not be the right direction. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> that people like Lori uh, Dissautels, I mean, that's where she goes and Mona goes in that uh, as well. I don't go there. I, I was a father of two kids who had atypical behaviors and I started to realize what my responsibility was. Can I help them develop skill sets to regulate? Can I downregulate this, the hypersensitivities that are really supporting and triggering more defensive behaviors? So the, it's a different strategy. It's like saying, can I be helpful to the child so that the child's not caught in the web? Yes. And I, I guess where I get really frustrated is that every time anyone wants to improve the school culture, the learning environment uh, in, a, in a school situation where there's a lot of disruptive behavior, the answer almost 100% is positive behavior intervention and supports. And, I'm, and what that means is behaviorism, the way it is being yeah, taught on top. And, and to me, it's almost like this, the solution is the cause. <laughs> uh, well, it, it contributes this, uh, but let's, let's kind of understand the, uh, the web of, uh, uh, the web of traps that are out there. Mm -hmm. uh, in Chicago, when I was at the University of Illinois at Chicago in the Department of Psychiatry, I worked with the Easter Seals Foundation to design a school for autism. And I wanted to change the curriculum. And I will tell you the model I, I 
I want to use. So there's a psychologist by the name of Heidi Alls who worked with preterm babies. And she developed a program which was called uh, NIDCAPS or something of that order. But uh, when she developed it, I had my science hat on and I said, well, what she was showing is really that if you gave preterm babies tests, you could evaluate uh, some of their individual differences and their level of development. But when she did that, there was, when I took the hat off, I realized what she had done because she had changed the culture of the neonatal intensive care unit because the staff there, including the parents, started to see the uniqueness of their own infant. The, the individual differences, the developmental trajectory, as opposed to a preterm child. They were now seeing they could identify with the child. Because one of the problems with prematurity is that the child's prematurity interferes with the co-regulation with the parent. They're not the neuroregulation, the face, vocalization, sucking. It's just not there. And state regulation isn't there either. So they're not getting, the parent isn't getting what they anticipate. And it's not simply... Uh, that the child doesn't want to love them. So when we move that into the world of autism, we get the same story. The child's nervous system isn't co-regulatory with the parent. And the parent will often say exactly what the parent of a preterm baby will say is, I love my child, but my child, or I'm not sure that my child loves me. And what they're saying is that the behavior is not reciprocal. It's not coming back. Facial expression. They're telling you what their bodies need. They're telling you what the cues of safety to the parent are. Now, when you start to explain that, it starts to help. It doesn't solve the problem because the cues aren't coming there, but they start understanding that it's not the intention of the child. So I wanted to change uh like the neonatal intensive care unit environments changed after Heidi got into there and trained them on these uniquenesses. I wanted the schools for autism to also have this kind of understanding of uniqueness, mm -hmm. of, of issues of regulating state and how the environment could calm the kids as opposed to pushing them out into mainstreaming and, and creating over hypersensitivities or triggering those. I was all about support. And so I, I redesigned or designed classrooms that were quiet and lights were uh, reflecting off the ceiling, windows, lots of natural light, but they were high, so they weren't distractors. Quiet rooms, they were, I had sound engineers coming in because sound is a critical cue of disruption. So then I went over to, uh, this is in Chicago, I went over to the county to try to get the curriculum changed so that they could spend more time in interactive or calming or other things. We couldn't change it. They had to have a certain numbers of, of, of this, certain numbers of math or whatever it was. It didn't matter whether the kids progressed on it. They had to have a certain number of hours. Mm -hmm. And so we missed the important building blocks, the foundational building blocks of what education should be about. It requires state regulation. We're missing that as the real underlying neural exercise of what in elementary or let's say even preschool is about. It's about getting the nervous system regulated and co-regulated to allow accessibility to uh, mental processes.
Mm-hmm. Let, let me walk you through kind of a, a, a typical scenario. And I'd just be kind of curious on your, your you know, thinking that, you know, we, we have an audience here, and I, I probably could have mentioned that to you, but we have an audience here that are, uh, we've got parents of children that have been restrained or secluded or other, you know, had other adverse uh, inter- interactions. We have self-advocates, you know, autistic self-advocates and others that have been restrained, secluded, you know, again, other types of, of negative adversives. Um, you know, we have uh, teachers, we have administrators, we have attorneys, all, all sorts of people as part of our, orga- you know, p- part of our, our uh, community. And, you know, we, we certainly have educators that have kind of crossed over and found things that work and found ways to help kids regulate and be successful and build strong relationships. But one of the scenarios, I'm going to kind of give you a generic scenario, but what that, that, you know, we see play out is you have a child that is, you know, maybe a child with a trauma background or maybe a child with uh, a disability. And, and I would I would even say that in many cases, a child with a disability has trauma related to their disability. Uh, if you have communication differences, that may be really frustrating and difficult to be in a world that doesn't see to understand you know, your, your way of communicating. So sometimes we see kids in a classroom who are communicating through their behavior. They're having a hard time. Maybe they're making sounds. Maybe they're doing something else disruptive. And and what happens invariably is a well-intentioned uh, educator might you know begin to put demands on the child, the child who's already struggling. And as demands are placed on the child, the child begins to escalate. And as the child begins to escalate, you know, the teacher puts additional demands on. And at that point, it's all about compliance. Uh, You know, kids will then go into that fight or flight response. They'll be working from their amygdala. They're no longer communicating with their frontal cortex and and things escalate from there into a a crisis situation. Um, You know, what what is your practical advice in terms of that educator of how to turn that around and get them moving towards co-regulation? Okay, so here's the first problem. That is the number of kids per teacher becomes mm-hmm. the first problem. So you start dealing with the pragmatics of the classroom. That's why a withdrawn, non-interactive child is not demanding on the teacher, mm-hmm. uh, but a reactive one is. So the the part is, uh, when you were kind of describing this uh, timeline to, to a meltdown, um, the cues were early in the sequence that there was going to be a meltdown. Um, and so teachers are not uh, cued to this. So I had an example uh, of this. I went to visit a school for autism, and, and uh, it was a, it's actually a relatively famous one in a major city. And I go in there, and they decide they're going to line up the kids, and the kids are now all going to, to shake my hand and say good morning to me. And I could see the fear in these kids mm-hmm. because it's so stressing. And basically, they were like, uh, it was like the tr- to demonstrate that their training worked to overcome right, right, their vulnerabilities. Right, right. So what happened was, this was now an adolescent class. Uh, they then sat down their desks, and an adolescent kid, uh, boy, got really, because he, he was still like that, and he was quite articulate. He just pushed the row of desks with people in it, just mm-hmm. forward, expressing himself. And, of course, he had to then uh, leave the room and run around the track multiple times. But... I mean, I was cringing when they were coming up to me because they mm-hmm. couldn't look me in the eye. They were finding, looking for a safe place. Mm-hmm. And it was disrespectful to the state of their nervous systems. And this is part of the problem going on. We're not teaching the teachers, or at least enough of them, to, in a sense, be aware of the antecedent 
reactions that could be seen in the face losing affect, right. their voices losing intonation, the muscles increasing, shifting in their breathing, that their bodies are already under states of threat because we're so convinced that if we raise the thresh, raise the valence high enough, we will control the kid. Mm -hmm, if mm -hmm. we threaten them enough or reward them enough, we'll get them to do something. And yet the research shows you over and over that's not true. So I have two questions to follow up on that. One is uh, you talked about you're a researcher and you're also a parent. I have three questions. <laughs> Just It'll be four before we know it. <laughs> and I, and I do want to remind people, while Beth is going through her four questions, uh, feel free to jump in uh, in the chat there and put questions, and we'll get to them here shortly. So I'm going to come back to the parent one, because we have so many parents who, who are the only ones um, in their circle who know how to uh, respect their child and, and see the cues and give that um, do that co-regulation and they're not being heard. So I'll come back to the parent thing in a minute. Um, the, it, it strikes me, you talked about you being a researcher and then there are people like Mona and um, Lori and I'll add um, uh, Ross Green, who does the um, collaborative and proactive solutions, very keyed in onto uh, proactive instead of waiting till there's a meltdown. We have the curriculum. <laughs> I mean, it's not in a curriculum form, but we have the information and there, there are more, but um, you just take what the four of you have done, throw in Bruce Perry, throw in some of the others. You, we have the information that to me, every college, um, that should be core curriculum because it doesn't matter what field you're in. We see these issues in criminal justice. Yeah. We see them in uh, DSS, Department of Social Services with kids in foster care. Make this a core curriculum yeah. of all the college. And then, you know, it also we obviously have to help the folks who are already in the field. But there is such a it's like we don't know how to do that. Yeah. We have the information, but we are not able to put it into yeah, well, let me first respond. This is part of the uh, goal of the Polyvagal Institute, and it was to find a, a group of educators and to create, in a sense, uh, materials for educators that they can go to the webpage and take these courses and get continuing education if they need it. Uh, the part is that there's no place where they would get this. So when I, I also tell you, like Guy asked me about my history. Well, and I have to now think back from 1985 to 2001, I was actually uh, a faculty member in the Department of Human Development. I was chairman of the department for a while, but it was in a college of education. <laughs> and that opened my eyes because in a college of education, they're not getting any coursework on maturation, on individual differences. So I used to say that if they left my courses with an understanding of individual differences and development, maturation, you're giving them something. They don't have that. So they see things as learning machines and compliance and lack of compliance. And then they put on top of it what I call a moral veneer, meaning that if you're not part, you're in a sense bad, you're a difficult child. And at that time, that was at the University of Maryland. We lived in Bethesda, and our kids went to quite an elite public school system in Montgomery County. 
which had uh, basically the average family was a physician and a lawyer or a lawyer and a doc, you know, uh, a scientist. It was in the NIH. We lived across the street from the National Institutes of Health. And so you have all this kind of rarefied environment. But the part of the school system, which really had high ratings because the kids tested well, was because the families were very education oriented. But our kids didn't fit in. And we actually, and, and this really, in, in a way, broke my heart because their experience wasn't positive. And we were fans of a public school model. We ended up sending them at the at eighth grade into private school. Mm -hmm. And we went to a private school which had small classes. And basically the metaphor was an open mic. It was kind of like allowed the kids to be who they were. And they placed their kids in great colleges and the kids have done extraordinarily well. Uh, but it was always supporting the kids where the public school system was really compliance. Mm -hmm. And if you have, and I was talking uh, on another webinar or something recently and heard that in California, there are 40 kids in a classroom. And I'm trying to say, how do you manage that? Mm -hmm. I had 39 and, and when I was in 10th grade, yeah. uh, some of my classes. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is, the whole model of, okay, the same things in medicine. I was giving a, uh, a, a talk at a, I, at a conference that was structured as no medicine, uh, what was it? No health without mental health. Oh, yes. And I was doing this keynote for this conference and I had a secondary title, are we ready for a brain body medicine, question mark. And I, at the end of my talk, I said, no, we're not ready. And following me were, were, were a series of symposia where they basically were arguing, in a sense, to fulfill my conclusion. They were arguing uh, that what they wanted was a place at the table. They wanted part of the pie. The mental health providers wanted some of the medical money. And I wanted that medicine needs to go through a retraining model. And it's the same thing with education because medicine, by being in all these sub-disciplines of mental and physical health misses the notion of how the body is regulated and both mental and physical health are greatly related. And education is really about, uh, got itself into a, in a sense, a mind without body model. And what I'm really saying is we need to go back to the basic training of what it is to be an educator like we need to be what it is to be a physician. And that is we're dealing with an integrated nervous system with a brain and a body that is changing over time. And this mm -hmm. is the development, the individual differences. And we can't just, in a sense, throw out the statement and say, all kids are different. Mm -hmm. I mean, or we know enough that we can see trajectories and we can see the impact of when those trajectories get uh, disrupted. It, let me jump in for one second, Beth. I just want to hit something real quick. You know, when, when we talk about some of the problems, we talk about class size, we talk about funding, we talk about all of these things, you know, those are certainly factors. But, you know, one of the things that we repeatedly have seen and I've seen myself is that you can have a child that's struggling in a given environment uh, that is funded no better than another environment uh, that, you know, isn't any further along. But, but the thing that seems to distinguish sometimes is the individual relationship. So yeah. when, when you have an educator that really forms that kind of bond, and of course, every teacher says, I, I love all my kids. 
but but I've seen firsthand the difference that it makes when somebody really tries to, to get a kid that's struggling. Yeah, so Guy, this is really an example of polyvagal-informed education. Mm -hmm. So what polyvagal-informed would mean is that you respect the physiological state of the child, of the individual. And when you say you have a relationship, you know, in polyvagal terms, we would say that you create a co-regulation with them that enables their physiology to literally give up its defense and become accessible. And in the educational world, the kid's accessible to learn as opposed to being vulnerable to being injured. So I, I, I love that polyvagal informed. I think Beth and I both lit up when you said that, you, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about, you know, what we think it, you need to be successful. And we talk about trauma informed and we talk about neuroscience, you know, based yeah. and we talk about relationship driven, but that idea of really understanding that brain and body connection is so critical and it may fall into other areas, but yeah. I love that idea. Well, that was actually the underlying goal of the polyvagal Institute was really to be able to use polyvagal informed as a brand mm -hmm. to basically say that we can train different disciplines to be polyvagal informed. And this is the pre prerequisite to get that polyvagal informed stamp. So and and will, will there be any kind of, um, so, so I'm imagining myself uh, as somebody in the audience as well as participating, but you know, if I'm a parent out there, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, gee, on your website, are you going to list schools that are using polyvagal informed approaches or how will we find people that have this training or how will we market that to our schools to say, well, gee, you know, we're seeing these kind of problems and, and here are solutions and, you know, wouldn't it be great if your staff could go through training like this? Well, I would say that, first of all, we just started the Institute a few months ago. It, it was an idea that is actually less than a year old. So, um, uh, in beginning of March last year, right, actually, right before the pandemic, we decided we would do this and everything's been doing the pandemic. So the, the issue uh, is, can we create a home? Let's get really focused on, on the problem of education right now. So can we get enough people in education wanting to get together to create a curriculum, define the curriculum and to structure a educational model where people can go online to take the courses. Mm -hmm. And and we've started those discussions already and you know some of the players. Mm -hmm. So uh, the idea is it, it's not just my vision of what education is, it's actually people who are in the educational world seeing the consequences. And then I can add uh, the foundations, but they have to have the translation of the foundation into practice. Yeah, I'll just say quickly before Beth gets their question, let us know how we can help. So if we can help with, with anything in terms of making connections with, with educators and others, um, you know, that's what, you know, a part of our role is trying to connect people together and uh, we'd love to do anything we can well, support that. We will be on email on this because Great. we want, this is one of the, so we actually have five, five probes and education was actually education was the second one I really wanted to hit. It was uh, because I, I have so much relationships within mental health. Mm -hmm. Education was the next. It's such an obvious place. It's, it's ripe for the need. And also many people within the profession want more tools. Yeah. And it's upstream from some of the other problems. So, you know, if we're, we're doing things in education, uh, we're going to be helping, you know, children to to grow up and develop and maybe not end up in other areas of, of focus as well. Um, so I think that upstream approach is really helpful. So I have two questions left over from my last one, but I forget mm -hmm. what they are. So I'll start with my two questions now. <laughs> 
Um, one is um, how, what, and let me just tell you the, the one I don't want to forget, is the mental health thing, because I'd really like to talk about that a bit, because I think our mental health field has been creating um, a lot of trauma yeah. uh, rather than do. So let me come back to that. But for the, for the Polyvagal Institute, um, has anyone reached out to Jill Biden or to the leaders in the um, U.S. Department of Education and said, we would like to have you a part of this group. This is what we're doing. Well, I, I okay, you're, you're tossing this into my lap and I have, <laughs> a, I have a mixed response to that. Okay. I've been around quite a while and one thing I've learned, and you've probably learned the same thing, is that trying to tell people what to do to sell them works. They right. have to they have to come to you and say, we want your help in revising or doing something new. And so my strategy has been, uh, even though when I was younger, I was relatively impatient. Over time, I learned that persistence really pays off, especially if you live long enough, you'll get there uh, for some of us. But the idea, what I'm really saying is if we get this thing structured in a way, I think it starts moving. We don't want to go into a situation of going to a person, going to a group and say, this is important. And then they'll say, well, how do we do it? I started this in medicine actually six months ago with a, uh, a medical, uh, a, basically is a um, uh, provider of uh, Medicare. Uh, it's a Medicare provider. And I wanted to create what I call the polyvagal informed navigator to try to enable older people or to navigate uh, the medical system. And I'm going to say education has some of the same attributes. And that is because medicine, like education, is all about evaluation. And in saying that it's, in a sense, education is. Think about it, test this, test that. And what is that really saying to the nervous system of the one who's being tested? It's threat. I mean, Absolutely. it's threat. And what, it tells you exactly where your nervous system is. And for some kids, it's such a, a high level of threat that it gets manifested in gut problems and social problems. And, you know, it, it's, it's actually, why would you torture people in that way? In medicine, it's the same thing. Who, who loves going to their doctors? Because you're going to get tests. You, and that's all they can do because they can write it up. They can bill it off. And you want to find out, how did your test show? Are the numbers good? Are the numbers not good? Is that a good way of becoming healthy? Or is there a, quote, psychoeducational journey for both education and also medicine? We're in medicine where we learn about our body as part of a team. So it's a, journey, a shared journey. Is education not a shared, a shared journey? Mm -hmm. Have we lost the the real attributes of shared journeys of cooperation in learning. I'm not talking about team questions or uh, where everyone sits at the same desk and the aggressive ones do all the work and the other ones just kind of like sit back. I'm saying shared uh, goals. This could even be a teacher and a student. So who is the good teacher? The good teacher is the one who doesn't answer before the kid can think about it, but can then give the child hints to get the child to go down that line, to stretch. And as the child is co-regulating in that intellectual space, their physiology is becoming 
more comfortable, more calmer as well. So we're, we're missing a lot because we, again, I'm going to push it one step further and say that we're a product of, of West, quote, Western civilization, mm -hmm. which is dualism. It's Cartesian dualism. It had a lot to do with the, the Catholic Church and the disembodiment, the notion that the mind and spirit were something great and the body was something that you should never even talk about or feel. So dissociation of mind and body or brain and body, dissociation of bodily feelings from intellectual pursuits are still appear to be the main objective of the educational model. Sit still. And it, you know, so much doesn't make any biological sense. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to take a minute here to get some questions and comments from the um, viewers that have been watching, because I know we promised them we would take questions and comments. And I think Beth and I could probably fill up a couple hours of your time with lots of questions. So let, let me just pull a few of these up real quick. And uh, this one was early on, said, how do we share this uh, to teachers who themselves yeah. see uh, themselves as successful because they were punished and rewarded. So, you know, people seem to seem to reflect on their own life. Well, when I was a kid, this happened to me. Okay. So, so just, just so as an academic, and I will tell you, I've been a professor for, uh, uh, on a professorial track since 1970. So in 1970, I was a very young assistant professor. I've been there a long time. It's all about evaluation and it's almost about initiation rights that, that when younger faculty come in or grad students, it's not supposed to be easy. So we start getting this myth about we got through it, therefore other children should. And then we have to also realize, I think part of that comment has to do with what I, it's almost like transgenerational traumas hmm. that there are ways we do things because they were done to us and done to our parents that become part of our culture that we're not thinking about. We're not, in a sense, using our, uh, I used a big brain or what we now know and saying, if we were, it's like Beth's point, if we were to start over, how would we structure how society would work? And of course, certain things we would start with, and that is, quote, safety, but now we have to operationally define what does that mean? It doesn't mean metal detectors or carrying a gun. Mm -hmm. It means cues of acceptance, cues of warmth, mm -hmm. cue, basically the net of interaction, the social net that we have from a, just using as our archetype uh, a mother's lullaby or the embrace we have for our children or we hopefully have for our children. But as you both know, there are many kids in school systems who don't have warm embraces right. from their parents because that's another, you know, it's a transgenerational trauma experience for the parents or the parents feel that there's so much pressure on them to be financially successful, to create mm -hmm. that security that they can't give, they don't have the capacity to mm -hmm. uh, offer cues of safety to their kids. They don't know how. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to go through a couple more questions and comments here real quickly. Um, uh, this yeah. was a comment we were talking, honor every human. Yes, this is fabulous information. And, and that gets into that, that conversation again about how so many of the things that happen are things that are being done to kids. It's not about, you know, helping individuals. And, and you know, so many of the, you know, the um, the different approaches that are taken are under the guise of there's something wrong with you and yeah. uh, we need to change who you are through uh, yeah. compliance, you know. I think that's, you know, uh, in education as well as in mental health, rather than understanding many of the reactions that we have as adaptive reactions to threat, 
we see them as maladaptive or getting the kids or getting the getting the kids in trouble and embarrassing the parents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I will share with you that when my 40 year old son was in like second or third grade and they called my wife and me in for a conference, they looked at me and said, you should know better. <laughs> and so I would, I would never go back to another meeting because they were blaming me for the fact that he wouldn't sit still. Right. Um, right. And, and, you know, it was, it was abusive. It wasn't like I could convince them they had their own worldview. Mm -hmm, and I think mm -hmm. this is where both of you realize there's a worldview that's imposed in, it's not imposed, it's embedded in the educational model. Right. I will also tell you, so I'll, I'll get all on the table. Both my parents were educators and my mother and my aunt, before my mother was an educator, she was a, uh, a caseworker for foster children. And so was my aunt. So there's this very interesting uh, latent history in my mind about all these uh, situations. Yet my parents were very concerned about how I behaved in the classroom because they felt it would show poorly on them. Mm -hmm. So we start getting all these things going on. Uh, and you start seeing again, because of, uh, uh, you know, there's immigration patterns that are, many families are only been in the country for one generation or two. And so there's a different uh, sense. And for some of the families, the education that their kids get become their functionally what's going to save them. They want mm. their kids to become professionals and create the wealth or the resources that they don't have. Yeah, there's so much emphasis. I mean, you, you know, uh, looking here in the United States, there's so much of a, a law and order mentality. And, you know, it's about consequences and, and you know, accountability. Uh, and, and so many, I mean, we still have 19 states that allow corporal punishment. Um, it's just amazing to me the things that, you know, are still being done to kids. And of course, you know, the hope is, how do we shift this? And how do we begin to you know, do a better job of raising other humans. You know? Okay, so I, I will reach back into my own revelation in my own life. And that was uh, our younger son had some, I'd say, on-spectrum tendencies. Mm. And I, I he wouldn't look at girls when he was like 12 years of age. He would turn away. He wouldn't say hello to friends over our house. And I used to say, look, I'll get you this. I'll basically very behavioral oriented. Right, right. Did nothing, absolutely right. nothing. Uh, he was a good kid. And this is the part that we haven't really discussed that many of these children are really loving, good kids. And the system makes them not only feel inadequate, it's not even respecting the positive emotions they put out. So I was developing the safe and sound protocol, the acoustic one, when he was 12, until he's now 37. So now you know it's been in the works for a long time. And I brought it home and he put it on and he listened for 10 minutes, came downstairs and for the first time, he looked me straight in the eye, came up close to me and articulated perfectly. So his, his speech patterns were, words were running together, no time between them without intonation. And he was, uh, you know, a gaze averter. And suddenly he became engaging. And it was such a shock to me that first I burst out laughing and literally hit the floor because it was so, it was, it, it actually got to me because I realized that I was treating him inappropriately. I was treating him as if 
his behavior was an intentional behavior. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And once I realized that it could be manipulated through acoustic stimulation of cues of safety, and this emergent, beautiful child just came out, mm. um, it was a remarkable transition in my life. Now, the, there were several things that did come up. First of all, he was very gifted in math and sciences. He lost interest in all that and became social. He became a journalist. He makes movies, but he's a happy kid. He's not a kid anymore. He has relationships. Uh, he, people like him. He likes people. The other thing uh, was, actually, I lost the track. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> a very rare thing for me. But anyway, there were two things here. So one was he became social. And uh, anyway, that, the, the, oh, oh, he, he still was vulnerable. So if he didn't eat, if he, he was still vulnerable to his own state dysregulations. So if he didn't eat, uh, he became disorganized. So we had to, I used to say when he comes in the house, feed his viscera, feed his internal organ, give him food. Don't even talk to him, just give him food. So we had, in a sense, a way of now helping him manage his own body. Now, his own awareness of this wasn't great in the very beginning because he felt, oh, other kids don't have to listen. You know, why does he? But uh, over time, he could become very sensitive when he lost some of his stability. So he became a better self-manager of mm -hmm. his own body. Mm -hmm. He became more embodied. And these are magic words or buzzwords in our culture. And our culture forces a disembodiment. And what our son did is he became re-embodied then we could see who he really was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I, I relate to that story because I have an amazing son who does amazing things. And uh, there was a time when when this happened to him in, in terms of being restrained and secluded at school, that it really was impacting him. And we were able to get him on a road to not only um, healing, mm -hmm. but but to being very successful. And and he really is just, I mean, I know I'm his dad, but he, he's an incredible kid. And he's Amazing. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, had I not been able to to write that, you know, in terms of getting him supported appropriately, mm -hmm. you know, his outcome might have been very, very different. And of course, yeah. I've met a number of kids who have had very different outcomes. We have prisons full of, uh, you know, children mm -hmm. with dis well, children that have grown up as in, and to be adults with disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's definitely a systemic issue, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what's happening in our society and you know, definitely a lot of work to be done. Yeah. <laughs> And I think with the with the work that I'm trying to do, I think that this is my biggest issue is this insistence that the behaviors are voluntary and right. intentional. And I saw that with my oldest son, um, that, that he had lots of <laughs> professionals give up on him. Mm -hmm. Until he makes a decision that he's going to blah, 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 we can't help him. And we weren't there yet understanding all this. This was in the late mm -hmm. 80s and 90s. Yeah. And uh, but we had one psychologist who was really the psychologist for my younger son who said, um, there's a good kid in there. Don't give up on him. There's a good kid in there. And, and uh, you know, everybody needs that because you can't tell just looking at a behavior if you didn't see the before and watch all the, or know the cues that lead up to it. They look the same. The non-volitional and the volitional. We used to say that with my younger son. I, this is not the real Craig. This is not the real Craig. Mm. But then it's like, wow, it's so 
uh, he's such a good actor if it's not the real creator. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, yeah. the, the way of visualizing is that we have different physiological states and each one basically has a different personality. So when we're in our sense, homeostatic, well-regulated uh, state, we're socially interactive and it contains the other lower brainstem regulation mm -hmm. of state. And so we have great resources. We can play, we can run, we can be intimate, we can share moments. If that's taken away, we're basically vulnerable to triggers of fight flight to protect ourselves. And with children, if they're uh, restrained or secluded or a big powerful person comes on them, they can totally shut down right. and almost leave their body. Mm -hmm. And this is in a sense, trauma. This is, mm -hmm. in a sense, almost an operational definition of trauma mm -hmm. because the body is experiencing life threat and then it mm -hmm. retunes itself. And this becomes part of the consequences of, I'm going to use this term, a well-meaning uh, treatment. So where people are restraining, they're doing it because they're taught to do this. They think it's going to be well uh, helpful. And potentially, you know, the justification uh, is that, you know, the child could hurt someone or hurt themselves. And so you start seeing that boundary. But is there another way of uh, isolating or at least uh, reducing the risks of hurting? I mean, we, we always hear like uh, of, of a policeman being untrained, uh, not trained to deal with these things, being extraordinarily abusive and even a shooting kids or pepper spraying them, which was the more recent one. Yeah. And you're trying to figure this one out. Why aren't they trained in this? Right. Uh, or why are they being called? So if a parent can't As handle no one else, that's why they're being yeah. called. They're told to call them. What's your yeah. crisis plan? Right. Do you have 911 on your crisis plan? I'm telling you, it's bad out there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, listen, we are getting real tight on time here. We're almost at the hour and we have a lot of questions that are coming in. I wonder if you might entertain kind of a lightning round of questions where I'll go through a few of them and just try to give some brief answers. Sure, my... we can go for another time. Okay. okay, sounds good. So yeah. my first question is from Gail, uh, a friend over in Australia, and I keep telling her I want to come visit her there. Uh, she says, how do we manage the complex child that has developmental disability and has been subject to complex trauma? I mean, <laughs> lightning round <laughs> it's not a light, right it's, it's like a, a, at best a three-day workshop but uh, <laughs> and i wouldn't even say that i'm the one you should ask i would say that i can understand what's happening to the vulnerability in the child uh, acting out uh my strategy in all this is finding the portal uh in which cues of safety will work uh because what we're really saying is can the nervous system give up defense? So when you have a disability, but you're not, she's not describing just disability. She's describing disability overlap with trauma. Mm -hmm. And so it's really saying that some of the disability may be exacerbated by the trauma experience, but trauma is telling the body that it's not safe. And we retune uh, our nervous system to be more, have lower thresholds to be defensive. So the question is, can we, he, I, I would basically now take this moment as a moment for, let's say, uh, a teachable moment, or we can use that term. Uh, mammals are very special because they have portals to detect cues of safety. 
This mm -hmm. is this concept of neuroception. Our nervous systems detection and evaluation of risk in the environment without awareness. We can detect cues of safety while other vertebrates can only detect cues of threat. We detect cues of threat. And what education and behavior mod does, this is cues of threat are powerful. Can we use it to manipulate mm -hmm. the behavior that we want? Mm -hmm. And the answer is that you can't get loving social behavior with a model that is, as it's threatening the nervous system, it's going to retract mm -hmm. and become defensive. Mm -hmm. So what, what's the cues of safety that, that a mammal comes into the world with? What's the portal? And it's the intonation of the mother's voice. It's a mother's lullaby. It's the prosodic features. It's the gestures. It's if you, what I used to do is when I, I would travel in pre-pandemic days, travel a lot. So I have a lot of airport experience, and you can see the differences between fathers and mothers with toddlers. Mm. So especially if it's a male toddler that the father takes to the bathroom, and the toddler is now really worked up, crying and screaming, goes to the mother. The mother just kind of looks, smiles. And maybe says a couple words. Totally calm. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and there's in a sense a real clue there. How do you talk to your dogs? Mm -hmm. How do you talk to a baby? Now ask the question: How do you talk to your children? So so let, let me uh, just piggyback on that real quickly. Uh, Gail is someone that I know that has years of education experience as an administrator, as a teacher. Um, are you, in terms of the Polyvagal Institute, are there people that if they're interested in diving into this further, should they be connecting with you through the Institute? Well, what they should do is uh, send an email to the Institute uh, the, on the webpage and say that they're an educator and they would be interested in participating or utilizing course material that we will be developing. We don't have it ready, so I don't mm -hmm. want to have any false, you know, anticipations. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. be patient. We're working on it. Okay, sounds good. So another question here. Let's say a mom becomes polyvagal informed, ah. but her child, um, yeah, but her yeah. child's classroom is not, uh, and kind of you know using clip down charts and things like that. What can the mom do to advocate and educate them and um, help to change the approach? Tough, again, I mean, these are, again, as a, as a father, my approach was uh, uh, being a polyvagal informed father, I'm promoting resilience in my child so my child can deal with the clipboard classroom uh, so, so that the child can deal with uh, these constraints. And that's, a, that's the pragmatics of who I am because you're asking really about changing the culture of classrooms and that is really what beth and i were actually talking about can we create a curriculum that right. all people can uh, all teachers have as part of the requirements now this is a problem because if you look at the educational curriculum for people in college of education you try to tell me how much uh development or even developmental psychology they have and how much do they know about the physiology underlying the psychological behavior? They know nothing about the psychology, about the physiology, and maybe very little about the development. 
Yeah, I was just bringing this up, as you said, it because somebody else um, said they're studying education in Australia right now and predominantly trained in academics, um, you know, and of course, there's a lot of other demands on teachers. So I think we definitely see that, um, you know, I think that one of the practical things I might offer to that uh, person that was asking of what we can do, and, and I've done this is, you know, I find books, uh, you know, I've handed out books like Mona's book to yeah. uh, Beyond Behaviors to IEP teams, you know, to teams working with kids and not everybody's receptive, but you know, if you get one or two per- people in the team that begin to understand, yeah. oh, hey, you know, we see what you're seeing or we're willing to try that. Lori Desitel's work as well. A lot mm-hmm. of very practical things um, in her, there's, her work. There's another book. It's a small book by mm-hmm. Claire Wilson mm-hmm. it's called Grounded. And Claire is a uh, educator from the UK. And she also focuses on neuroception but uh, she focuses uh, in one of the, in her in the book. She describes uh, children in class. Certain classrooms have more children who basically go uh, have sh- uh, go into tantrum. They have sh- uh, uh, they lose it, and she realized. And this is what she did in her book. She describes that if a teacher has a bad day at home or an argument at home, and goes into the classroom. That classroom is now more vulnerable to having these outbreaks. Why? Because the teacher is not receptive to the child's needs. It's like the still face, you know, my, in terms of turning away from a baby and the baby going ballistic. In the case of, the, of teachers, they have to understand that their facial expressivity, their receptivity to the child's engagement is critical. If they turn mm-hmm. away or become flat, then the child is... Yeah, will be reactive. Yeah, I'll never forget something my son said to me once. Uh, he was in a classroom where the teacher meticulously took data of of any time he did anything that was um, anything that he did that was wrong. And, and one day he looked at her and he said, "Do you ever mark down the things I do right?" Um, and I mean, it just really had an impact on him. Just feeling like every somebody's watching you and just waiting for you to to make mistakes. Well, I I think we're all we you know not only as a teacher, I think we're all caught in that trap. Mm-hmm. We think that uh, because we really have bought into a dogma, a a mythology, that we have, if we identify what's wrong, we'll have control over it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and we'll take responsibility for it. Now, there's a little of that that's true, but we lose that capacity if being aware of it makes us feel bad. Because if it makes us feel bad, our physiology shifted and now we're no longer accessible to modify the behavior. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this was really going back to my talk to ABAI, was the physiological state is really the determinant of whether the ABA works. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a question here asking if you can speak to how we can support trauma responses demonstrated in adults. Uh, I work with a lot of frontline healthcare workers who are stuck in a freeze response as a function of what they've endured over the past years. Yeah, well, uh, the trauma is a very uh, complex reaction and it has some paradoxical attributes to it as well. So if you suffer from a severe trauma history and someone is supporting you by, let's say, doing breathing exercises where you calm down, that calming down may create a greater sense of vulnerability and basically be a trigger to trauma. So I think the support comes in learning how to be a good witness. In a sense, listening without evaluation, a good witness. And I think 
uh, if we generalize it from to parenting and education, I think we are horrible witnesses. We evaluate, we want to fix. Medicine is the same thing. So to answer that question, if you think of yourself as a witness who's just there to be supportive, not to fix, but to be there, then you can start getting somewhere. Okay. A couple of quick things. And then Beth, you know, I'm going to save the last question or three for you. Um, so a couple of quick things. Um, Gail said, thank you for your response. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, people asking if you uh, have any connections in the UK. Uh, also somebody um, suggesting you come to Australia. So um, is any of your work, um, are there people over there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, okay. in Australia, I've worked with the Australian Childhood Foundation and I've been to Australia. They're in Melbourne, but they have centers all over this, all over the country. And I've been to Australia at least five or six times. And I've been to the UK many times. And there are people in the UK. Uh, I say, look on Amazon and look at Claire Wilson's book. And she did a TED Talk in the UK. And she's lovely and with a passion to try to be helpful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Um, and uh, a lot of great comments here about how amazing this has been. And again, I know your wife's not here, but she can watch <laughs> it. We're recording this. Uh, let, let her know that our, our group here really thinks you're amazing. Uh, a lot of people that were also interested in uh, signing up. Here's Greg Santusi, an amazing uh, individual as well that's interested in uh, you know, uh, the, the, the um, you know, working, you know, with the um, Polyvagal Institute. So a lot of great comments. So with that, uh, we're, we're just about at time. I want to give Beth a chance to ask a couple, um, one or two final questions. Well, I, not so much as a final, I will ask one final, but first I want to say in, in other um, pre uh, videos I've seen you do in this past year, you talked about how you started uh, wearing your glasses so you could make the connection with people. And, and I think about the fact that you model, I listen to a lot of your tapes, uh, you're, they're not tapes. You make fun of me, God, because I say tapes. <laughs> I listen to a lot of your audio stuff, and it in itself is calming. It is, you have that voice, rhythm, and prosody. Mm. Prosody is a big word for me, but what, so I just want to say I appreciate that, and I, I, I would expect that you probably have that impact on people you're interacting with on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Well, first of all, Beth, thank you very much. My own self-evaluation is that I'm a good enough co-regulator, but I've met, I've met some super co-regulators. So, so I just want you to know there's some people out there that when you meet them, when you're in the room with them and they open their mouth and they talk, they could say anything and you're still smiling and feeling comfortable in their presence. And when you meet, it, it's it's special. And I think we need to, in a sense, be kind of aware of our impact on others. And for for me, uh, and this is part of what the pandemic has done to me. And I said, yeah, I I don't normally wear glasses except to read, but on webinars, I I wear them so I can see the upper parts of your face, and so I'm engaging, and. It has an impact on me. So the fact that my voice is prosodic and I sound accessible, it's because I'm interacting with you and my body's picking up cues. And to me, it's that, that's why the time moves quickly. And I, I view it as a positive social experience. 
Uh, Absolutely. And Beth, maybe we can find a, a VHS tape um, of him doing some stuff. I'll send you a fax about it and we, we can talk about it. <laughs> so um, I'm pretty soon I'm going to be able to wear that shirt I gave my husband. It says I survived the 60s twice. Um, but anyway, um, the the other thing is the, the behavior when I think we didn't touch on mental health a whole lot, just a little, but <clears throat> I've had such a problem with the idea of naming it behavioral health um, because it just puts it in that yeah. same place of, um, so I, I guess that's just my comment. I, I think we're so probably on the same let, page. Let me build on that. And what I like to say is that as a species, let's talk really general, as a species, okay. we're really a remarkable loving species. The issue is what's at, at our core. The issue is what's what's the wrapper, and mm -hmm. the wrapper is really this defense mechanisms, and which are really pleading. Uh, the internal argument is a dialogue of can we get rid of those defenses so we can be who we are, and yes. and the pandemic has not been good for that because it's a chronic uh, threat. Violation of expectancy is interpreted by our nervous system as threat. So we have pandemic, we have political, uh, uh, whatever we want to call it. We have feelings going on all over the place that are changing our sense of, of safety inside. And of course, when our physiology shifts to become more threat oriented, what are we doing to our kids and our loved ones? Well, which is what I, my big awakening when I started researching and learning. And I went to some of the parent uh, leaders too, like Laura Markham, who does AHA parenting. And I saw, I am too reactive. I am too wanting to make everything nice for everyone and wanting to fix. And it was a real mm -hmm. awakening to me about how I needed to. Um, yeah. It, 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 we have that f dialogue in the house here. So my wife wants to be, wants to fix. And I'm saying fix, no one who is broken wants to be fixed. They want to be witnessed. Yeah. Because what I, what I used, to, what used to say to so you, now I'm becoming totally transparent, is I would say, you don't have to tell me how to fix things. I'm a bright guy. I need to be listened to. I need to be witnessed. Mm -hmm. It will make me feel better. Don't try to solve the problem. I can do that. That, you know, that's not the issue. My body needs to feel welcomed. I and think that's a perfect way to, you know, I could ask you a hundred more questions, but. Well, you, you actually can't because we've got to <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> we keep our promise here. <laughs> I, love I, I love the way you've said that. This, this has been really fantastic, and we really appreciate you joining us. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm ready to, to line you up for part two of this because uh, this has been a fantastic uh, discussion. Not right away. We'll, we'll give you a break. Okay, okay. Uh, but, but you know, I mean, I think it's so important. I mean, what, what I really love about what you're doing, uh, I'm, I'm a big, uh, you know, I've got a, a background in science, and I'm a big believer in in science. And, and to, to be in a conversation where we're talking about homeostasis and the polyvagal theory and all of this um, is really important because, you know, this, you know, when, when we're talking about the challenges that kids are having, that individuals are having, there is better science out there and we should be doing things that are, you know, relationship driven and that are meeting all of the criteria that we, we know we can do. And it's been so inspiring to, to be able to see, you know, the work that you're doing. Uh, we certainly want to do anything we can to uh, help with, with what you're doing and spread awareness. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So, so let me, first of all, thank you. And, uh, 
let's be in contact with the Institute to see if we can do something in joint. The other thing is really about education. And that is we have to understand that learning and social behavior are biological. Mm. There's a biological component. It's not separated from our body. We have to be accessible for social interactions. We have to be accessible to learn, which means our bodies have to be out of states of defense, which means we can't be chronically reacting to threat, mm. which is what we would call chronic stress. Mm. So we have to have this degree of compassion, which really starts with witnessing and acknowledging that people, some people are under states of chronic threat, meaning the kids in our schools, and especially those with trauma histories, abuse histories, disabilities, and uniquenesses. They're under a lot of stress. So thank you very much. Yeah, and, and the audience thanks you as well, and and are supporting the idea of uh, part two. So you know, <laughs> back, we could say back by popular demand uh, next time. Um, so I have a couple announcements, but I will go ahead and let uh, you and Beth go, and I will make those uh, final announcements here. Thank you so much, and again, I will send you a follow up email with a link to uh, the recordings, Great. and I encourage people that watch us today share this with your other parents and teachers and others. So thank you very much, and we'll we'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Great, thank you, Guy, and thank you, Beth. Thanks. All right. And thank you, Beth. All right. So thank you again for joining us. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today's uh, presentation. Uh, I do want to let you know that we've got uh, another great guest coming up uh, in two weeks. We'll be talking to Ellie Chappelle, uh, which you may know or may have heard before Flip the Narrative. Uh, Ellie is going to be sharing her experience with us and uh, how to uh, create positive change. It'll be a great time to do an interview with her. So we're really looking forward to that. Um, and that will wrap us up for today, but I really want to thank everybody who's taken the time to join us here live. Uh, those of you that will watch us after the fact, we've got a lot of these. We've been doing these now for almost a year. So we've got a number of really great programs. I encourage you to go to our YouTube page and check those out. Uh, in the meantime, uh, thank you all very much. And, uh, please feel free to reach out to us if we can help you in any way. Thank you and have a great day.